Bernhardt, I'm a friend and student of Sylvia's, and uh, I show up here occasionally when she and Donald aren't available. Um, I thought I would talk this morning about, um, tell a story about the, the uh, history of the Dharma, about its introduction into the world, its reception at the time of the Buddha, its transmission, interpretation, and um, how the process of interpretation affected the message that we all get. Some might be wondering why that's important, but you know, when we look around at what presents itself as Buddhism today, not everybody seems to be on the same page. You get one senior meditation monk from Burma who says you can't begin Vipassana practice until you have mastered all the uh, forms of concentration practice. Another senior monk from Burma says choiceless awareness, open mindfulness. How did that happen? You have people with degrees, with science degrees, who are talking about reincarnation and karma as if it were some kind of intelligent design built into the, into the cosmos. What's that about? And we're left with questions. Should we pursue concentration practice? Should we not? How much? You know, there's, there's sort of confusion. And we ask, what's going on? What's this about? What you, what you are asking for is a story. You know, in, in neuroscience, it's pretty clear now that story is the way that the human brain organizes the information that comes in. There's so much data. I mean, just all of the colors, the sounds, the, the kind of neurological processing in order to, I mean, we could look at a timeline of things that have happened over the past 25 years of Buddhist history, and it's just a list of dates and events. So we're looking for a story, story two, um, from, you know, subject, subjectively, yeah? And, you know, I just returned from Vietnam, which is a Buddhist country, and, mm-hmm. you know, you talk to some people there, and they think, they think Buddhism is corrupt, because much like I feel, I was raised Catholic and feel about the Catholic Church, so mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's been bastardized over there, so that people who were raised in that culture, a lot of them have separated themselves mm-hmm. from the, you know, the, the sort of... Um, organized structure. So it's so beautiful, I think, how we can look, we just look at the philosophy and, and the texts, and I mean, it's so different here. Well, one of the things that happens when you put the, the Buddhist teachings in perspective and look at it historically is you wind up having to abandon a notion of true Buddhism, because there's so many versions. And the question is, what, you know, what's at stake for us? individually is, is how we're going to practice. You know, what does it mean to be following the Buddhist path? And that's something we have to answer ourselves. 
You know, if, if somebody, and it makes a difference, if somebody just pushes a piano over at you and says, play Alpha Duration Mama, you're going to go, hmm? And it's sort of like that in Buddhist practice, if you, if you talk about enlightenment. What does that mean? If you don't have an idea what the melody is, it's kind of hard to play it. Enlightenment is sort of left, it's just, I'm not even sure what it means. But if I say the melody is Twinkle Little Star, you go, oh, yeah, okay, I, you know. And I say, well, just play it, but just use the black keys. <laughs> You're never going to make it sound right. You know? So if the instruction is wrong, you know. And, and then if somebody says, well, use the white keys, well, that's helpful. And if you play around for a bit, you might, you might get it. But if they say, you know, start with C or G, and go, oh. So if the instructions are clear, it's easier to actually get the result that you had in mind. So what I thought I would do would be to, to talk a little bit about the stories, about what happened, how it's come to be this way, and see if it can be helpful for us. You know, there are different stories. There's the Theravada story, the Mahayana story, there's the Vajrayana, then there's my story. <laughs> Which is what you're going to get, <laughs> pretty much. I just hopefully there's enough uh, shared data points that uh, it'll be comprehensible. So what what did the Buddha really teach? What did he teach? It's an interesting question. One of the things that people do often in order to um, figure that out is to go back to the earliest texts. The, the scriptures and the Pali canon. You know, Jesus taught for three years and he's got like this many pages in the Bible. You know? uh, but the Buddha taught for 45 years and the, it's a bookshelf. You know, it's, there's a lot of text. So there should be a lot to go on. But if you actually start looking through there, you know, there's, there's stories about, uh, well, the Buddha was born. And in the moment of his birth, he emerges from the womb and takes seven steps with an umbrella held over his head, and he says, seven above and earth below, I am the honored one. No? No? You know, there are stories about uh, superpowers and mind reading, gods and multiple heaven realms. Hmm. So finding out, figuring out what the Buddha taught is sort of like a treasure hunt. Sort of looking <clears throat> through history to, and through the, through the early texts to, uh, it's, it's sort of like a, uh, you know, what's happened is like a 2,500 year game of telephone. You know? And our task is to sort of sort out the signal from the noise. Hmm. So, the, the Theravada story, a lot of you are familiar with it. The Buddha was born as a prince. 
his father was a king and he, he, he wanted to keep him uh, secluded from the, the troubles of the world and so he kept him within the walls of a large palace. Actually, the Buddha had three, before he was a Buddha, he had three palaces. And um, when he was 16, he left the, the confines of the palace, you guys know the story, with his charioteer and he encountered the four heavenly messengers. He saw a dead person, oh, he saw an old person, a sick person, a dead person, and he said, what's that all about? And uh, his charioteer said, well, it's what happens to everyone. And then he saw a samana, uh, a person who had abandoned the home life to, to pursue some whatever sense of spiritual salvation he was looking for in the, in the forests. And the Buddha taught, he, he went and practiced concentration practices with a couple of um, meditation masters who seem to have been historical characters. They're referenced in other, other works at the time and he mastered, the Buddha mastered these concentration techniques fairly quickly and each of these teachers offered him a shared role in leadership of the, their Sangha. But the Buddha sort of said, you know, this is not so bad, but when you open your eyes, it's same old, same old. And not quite the exact translation, <laughs> but basically. So he practiced uh, severe austerities and found that that didn't work, and then he undertook a sitting under the Bodhi tree and attained whatever it was insight that he had and he taught for 45 years. And when he died, there was a council of the fully awakened beings. At the time, there were 500. There were 499 before Ananda, his attendant. I think it was the night before, as he was, and I, it's interesting, just he was lying down to go to sleep, he woke up. And they, the council, uh, the job of the council was to recall the teachings that the Buddha had presented over, over the 45 years. So these were recited and memorized. This was a culture um, where memorization was, it was a pre-literate culture largely, memorization was a, uh, a learned skill. And for the Brahmins at the time, memorized huge, all the, the, the contents of the Vedas. Um, so they memorized these teachings and recited them and passed them down for several hundred years and then they were committed to writing and they were brought to us today pretty much almost sort of like a CNN clip, you know, it's, it's a, an account of what happened. And that's sort of how the, uh, the material is, is, is taught in the, in the Theravada teaching. The Mahayana teaching is a little bit different. You know, at a certain point, the Mahayana broke off. The word Mahayana translates as great vehicle, and of course there was some, um, there was some disagreement about what, what actually was the correct teaching. Uh, 
the, at, at the time, the, uh, this was several hundred years after the Buddha uh, taught, um, the monastic order had become more and more focused on scholastic work. The Abhidhamma was developing. It was tough to be a monk because celibacy was, was a part of the program. And the Mahayana, and, the, and it, it came to be understood that mostly the monastics were able to attain awakening. Well, for a variety of reasons, the Mahayana replaced the ideal of the arhat, the fully awakened being, with the idea of the bodhisattva, the being who is committed to the salvation of all others, even before awakening oneself. It's interesting, if you look in the Pali texts, the notion of the uh, bodhisattva didn't exist for several hundred years until after the Buddha's death with the rise of the Mahayana. But if you look at the, uh, the texts, you'll find places where the Buddha is quoted as saying, when I was an unenlightened bodhisattva. Hmm somehow that text got stepped on. Let me talk a little bit about the context that the Buddha, that the Buddha was, was living in and teaching in. The culture was uh, basically a Brahminic culture uh, that we would think of as a caste system. The Buddha was born in uh, towards the southern edge of Nepal, northern edge of India, and he um, was sort of outside of that system initially. The Brahmins were the priests. These were the people who uh, mediated between humans and the gods and made sure that the cosmos was functioning appropriately by performing the rituals that were prescribed in the Vedas. So if you wanted rain or you wanted your uh, animals to be fertile, you wanted a, a child, you would go to the Brahmins and they would chant the mantras and burn the incense. And when they did that correctly, the universe responded appropriately. Actually, the word in Sanskrit that uh, describe the correct performance of Brahminic ritual is karman, action behavior. It was, it was talking about the specific behavior that the priests would perform. And so if you did it right, good karman. And if you sort of, you know, hit the wrong pitch on the mantra or whatever, not so good karman. There were the Brahmins, there were, the, there were the, uh, the administrative class, which included the uh, public officials. Um, warriors. There was a, a, a merchant class, a working a class of workers, and then there were people who had no caste or class. They, they perhaps were from another place or had were the result of maybe liaisons between people of different classes. Mobility between the castes was pretty much not possible. 
or they were people who had abandoned the home life to pursue some kind of spiritual thing. At the time, you know, anthropologists now and archaeologists go back and there were no palaces. There were no, you know, this was, the, the villages were run by small groups, councils of the headmen of the major families. So the Buddha's father was probably a headman of a, of a village. Interesting also, if you look through the Pali texts, the stories of the heavenly messengers don't occur in relation to the Buddha. Sort of massaged in a little bit later. The, the, uh, the Brahmins had an idea. Well, they were working off of these old texts which were essentially hymns or poems. That's how they're described. And about 100 to 200 years before the Buddha appeared, <coughs> the notion uh, surfaced about reincarnation rebirth multiple lifetimes. And the, the underlying notion was that there is some spirit, essence, pervading the entire universe, Brahma, Brahma, Brahm, Brahma, Brahman, Brahman, the ground of being, um, it's, it's, it's a, a similar kind of, it's the invisible that gives rise to the visible. Um, we see this in this kind of a relationship in many religions. The idea was that each of us as part of this whole has within us a spark of the divine. And this spark, this, this soul was Atman. And the idea was Atman is Brahman. And that the purpose of practice was to realize one's identity with Brahman in preparation for dying. So at the, when one died, one would be able to become absorbed into the oneness of all. And so the, the kind of concentration practices that led to um, the, most, the most exotic, the states of neither perception nor non-perception were aimed at that kind of practice. Of course, the Buddha wound up saying, anatta, no atman. So he was, he was pretty definitely not aligned with that notion. But this notion of atman and brahman was, the, was ambient in the culture at the time. Also ambient um, were the notion of, well, the parameters of ethical behavior. What we know as the precepts, the first four of those, which basically not, not killing or harming beings, not taking what's not freely giving, given, not engaging in harmful sexuality, not lying. These were the same four vows that the Jains or Jains took when becoming. So these were ambient. There's a a place in the Diganakaya, one of the early collections of, of uh, teachings, where a Brahmin comes to the Buddha and says, basically, I've been a good boy and, and uh, I've 
followed these precepts. So these were sort of ambient in the culture as well. The notion of karma, which, which uh, we pretty much, you know, the idea was, you know, we, we get it from that time. And, and the idea was that, you know, you reap what you sow, what goes around comes around, your behavior comes back to you by the universe. Um, the notions of rebirth, as I said, and, and jhana practice. So what the Buddha, what the Buddha brought to the table at the time, these things existed. The Buddha, the Buddha had an insight, a pretty profound insight into the nature of the dissatisfaction that we experience with our lives and with the world, with the suffering that comes with, with life. But an experience, an insight that deep is hard to talk about. If, and if he'd said, well, it's just pretty far out, it's kind of hard to put into words, I can't really, you know, it's too, too uh, exotic to be able to say, well, we would have been left with not what we've got. <laughs> no. So the Buddha employed, and, and, and basically he had the cosmology, the language that was present at the time to work with. If he'd started talking about, you know, neuroscience and evolutionary, uh, you know, inheritance, probably wouldn't have gone over so well. No people, you know. So what he did was he would take the, the terms that were used at the time and he flipped the meanings of them. So Brahman, for example. He had Brahmins, young people largely, because they'd, they'd heard of him, they would come to talk with him. And he would say, yes, Brahmins, but not by birth is one a Brahmin. One becomes a Brahmin by virtue of one's character quality of one's, one's character. So he internalized a lot of, a lot of these terms in this way, metaphorized them. Um, in each Brahmin household there were three fires that were eternal fires that had to be kept burning. There was the fire of creation, there was a fire that was the, represented the life of the head of the household, I can't remember the third one, but they had to be tended and, and uh, uh, fed constantly. And the word that was used to describe that process of feeding the fires was upadana. And if you're familiar with, with the teachings in the Pali, upadana is the Buddha's word, the word the Buddha used for grasping. It's the point where the intention <coughs> kicks in and you actually go for, go for it, whatever it is. And the Buddha said, I'll tell you about feeding three fires. Fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what upadana. Greed, hatred, and delusion. So the three fires and fire was a very potent metaphor at the time. The three fires... You know, by the time that the Theravada was formed and the Mahayana, much of this early material was lost. And so you find 
uh, talk about the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion, which loses the cultural context. You know, the Buddha talked about karma as well. But he said karma is intention. It's not, it almost doesn't matter what you do if the intention is skillful. <coughs> so he internalized that. It's not, you know, you say we, we don't, when, when he went to the Kalamas, the Kalamas said, you know, there was some guy here last week and he was talking his dharma, and you're talking, why, why should we believe you? He said, you shouldn't. He said, what you should do is to uh, look, don't, don't go by teachers, don't go by tradition, don't go by even your logical reasoning. But when you know for yourself that what you intend to do is for the benefit of yourself and others, go for it. And when you understand that it's not, refrain. It was about intention. Karma becomes not what happens to you, but it becomes what you turn yourself into. You know, what you, the Buddha says, what one routinely thinks about and ponders upon becomes the inclination of the mind. So when you close your eyes and go to follow your breath and all these thoughts come up, that's your karma. There was a, a show on 60 Minutes a while ago, maybe, my gosh, or maybe a year or more ago now, where, where they had discovered some, a bunch of people uh, who could remember everything in their lives. Some of you may have seen it. So uh, a psychologist down at UC Irvine, and they had these people, I mean, they could remember everything. They could recite and they had one guy who was recounting a football game from 1976. And while he's talking about the game, they were showing the, you know, a video of the game. And he was just, he was describing it. <laughs> and one of the women, um, as a violinist, I think her name is Louise Owen. She's from New York. And Leslie Stahl asked her whether this was a curse or a blessing. And because, interestingly, I think none of these people had partners. <laughs> one did one. One had, yeah. I, one, somebody said it's it's hard to always be right. <laughs> but when he when he asked whether, oh that's right, her friend had was, but but when he asked whether this was a a, a blessing or a curse, she said, well you know. Because I know that I'm going to remember everything that I do. I live my life so that I won't have any regrets. Mm -hmm. Karma, the precepts. You know, the precepts are taught, don't kill. But the word, which is an outward, it's a behavioral thing. But the word in Pali, panatipata, means not to strike at. So he's talking about the, the intention, the impulse <coughs> of the heart. He internalized that too. The Brahma Viharas. Now the Brahma Viharas, the word Brahma, 
was the was the chief god, was the head of the gods. And I love the politics and all this because in the in the scriptures, you know, the Buddha has his moment of awakening and he's looking about and he says, geez, this is pretty subtle. This is pretty hard to understand. Nobody's gonna get it. But Brahma comes to him and says, for the benefit of of humans teach out of compassion. So the head of the gods, the Brahmin gods, comes to the Buddha and beseeches him. So the relative status is achieved in the text. So there's some politics in the text, in the early texts. But Brahma was the chief of the gods. Vahara means a place to live. Interesting. This, this is, you know, when, when Western uh, missionaries went to India and South Asia and encountered people in orange robes, they said, monks, nuns, that's how they recognized them. But the word means bhikkhu, I mean the word bhikkhu means beggar. But monk and nun was monastery, place where you go for solitude. A vihara is just a place to live. But what was seen was monasteries. Now we see monasteries, we, you know, so, and we, we, we feel comfortable using the words monks and nuns. But Brahma Vihara, the place where Brahma lives. Now at the time, the Buddha said, I'll show you how to abide with Brahma. That would have been in terms of the people at the time, the highest possible spiritual attainment imaginable. That was the highest. But by the time the Theravada was organized, about the fifth century in Sri Lanka, that context had been lost. So the Brahma Viharas became sort of a second tier, maybe because they reflect the, the uh, uh, qualities of the heart. The Brahma Viharas, friendliness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And they weren't the real serious wisdom practices that would lead you to Nibbana. So this is one of the, te- the techniques that the Buddha, Buddha had to use, the language and the understanding that was, that was existent at the time. So what did he bring to the table that was different? Stephen Batchelor looked around and compared what was in the culture and what was in the canon and came up with a listing of a few things that, were, that are, are interesting. The first is the notion of self-reliance. You can't depend on the Brahmins. And actually, you know, it's interesting in, in Western culture, if, you know, because of the, the, the notion of original sin, we are originally flawed. We're some, there's something wrong with us. So, you know, if there's something flawed about us, then we need a savior. We can't do it ourselves because we're crippled. But that's not the vision in Asia. It's up to us to clear away the defilements that lead us to suffering. <coughs> Self-reliance, that's, that's still the case. Each of us has to enlighten 
are awakened on our own. We can't, someone can push a piano in our direction and say white keys, but if we don't actually sit down and play the tune, we can know about it, but it's not the same as being able to do it. He brought mindfulness, mindfulness practice. At the time, the absorptions, the jhana absorptions were part of the uh, renuncia culture, you know, the renouncer culture. And actually the renouncer culture looks a lot like uh, what, what the monastic uh, life looks like today. And, and the Buddha didn't reject that. But he brought mindfulness, mindfulness as a kind of meditative attention in which the object of your attention becomes your present moment experience. We spend a lot of time thinking about our experience. The Buddha wanted us to experience our thinking, not just the you know, colors and shapes and sounds but to recognize the thinking as one of the, one of the sensory uh, inputs. Bring our attention to our present moment experience. Self-reliance and mindfulness. Self-reliance, yeah. And he formulated, he articulated his insight into suffering. He said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. That's what I teach. Dissatisfaction. I teach about our dissatisfaction and about the end of dissatisfaction. And he articulated that in terms of the four, what we call the four noble truths. The formula for the four truths such as suffering, such as the origin of suffering, such the cessation of suffering, and such the path to the cessation of suffering. This formula appears scattered throughout the early texts, and in a few places it's, it's identified as four truths. The suggestion of truths make them seem like metaphysical affirmations, but they're really four teachings. And, and the Eightfold Path, the fourth truth, the Eightfold Path, became the Buddha's, or it is, the Buddha's program for practice. It's not a one-fold path. It's an Eightfold Path. And it's a way of being without, without suffering, without, without making it worse. He ethicized action. At the time, your duty was to perform the tasks appropriate to your caste. And the Buddha said, right speech, right action, right livelihood. These, these behaviors are to be done in a way that does not give expression to craving. The craving which naturally arises in us. So he ethicized, he ethicized behavior. And then 
he he taught about he taught the, the what the three characteristics of well sometimes it's presented as existence I I think it 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 feels comfortable to say the three characteristics of our experience impermanence nothing permanent our, what you were thinking when you walked in the door gone back there with the dinosaurs wherever back there is you know just just history just evaporated dukkha unsatisfactoriness the idea that there's nothing capable of sustained satisfaction impossible to find sustained anything much less sustained satisfaction because everything's changing and anatta anatta no atman the notion that there isn't any kind of permanent entity soul essence it became the the hallmark i'll talk a little bit about it in a, in a couple minutes um, it became the hallmark of the Madhyamaka school in of the of the Mahayana people. Emptiness, and this is this is the notion that really distinguishes the Buddhist philosophy from all others, as far as I can tell. If everything is impermanent and in transition, changing, and everything is embedded in everything else, there aren't any things anywhere. Things are nouns that occur in language, but in experience, it's just a constant unfolding. I mean, embedded in everything. I, I, it's, it's a, I like to hang out on the NASA website because um, I, my father was a sort of a, 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 an astronomer and I sort of learned... So um, there's a little clip that I carry around on my cell phone because it's so cool. A couple of astrophysicists saying, you know, that the only place in the entire universe where an atom of iron can be formed is in part of an exploding supernova. <laughs> and all the heavier metals as well. They are all formed in that intense explosion. So any of you who have iron in the hemoglobin of your blood, that comes from an exploding star. There's, there's, we are embedded in the Big Bang. Everything is unfolding. There are, nothing has an essence that lasts, that is... That is uh, that lasts. And that notion of emptiness, emptiness applies, well, to the noun that we use to describe something, and that thing is empty. And the Buddha was specifically not, Advaita, was specifically not talking about the oneness of all things and our unity with all things and our place in the cosmos talking about, he wasn't talking about metaphysics, he was concerned about how we put an end to suffering. So what happened when the, when the Buddha died? Well, there was this council, they came together and formulated um, 
the, the texts in the language, in the Pali language. Um, a couple of hundred years later, uh, Ashoka, who was a king of India, I mean, if you look at the maps, he, he controlled maybe 70%, 75% of the Indian subcontinent, a major, a major <coughs> guy, became a follower of the Buddha, and he had some of the Buddha's teachings and instructions to his people based on the Buddha's teachings written in stone on these pillars, and they're the earliest uh, texts we have of, of the, uh, the Buddhist teaching, because actually the script that we have now, the earliest, is probably about 8th century. In the creation, and Ashoka sent his, his son to Sri Lanka. It was Ceylon or whatever it was then, and became um, a, because it was not on the subcontinent, it survived the ravages of the, uh, the, the Muslim invaders who destroyed the monasteries and the, the yogic tradition that, that supplanted Buddhism. And Buddhism pretty much disappeared in, in India, although it had escaped into China. When it escaped into China, it came pretty much as a meditation practice. Bodhidharma was a meditation master. And Chan Buddhism in China and Zen in, in Japan were meditation practices. Transmission outside the scriptures, no reliance on texts. Which was in contrast to the, to the Abhidhamma scholars who relied heavily on texts for articulation of their meditation experience. The creation of a, of, a, of a religion, you know, the Buddha, most, most religious prophets come and say, you know, I'm speaking on behalf of, the Buddha said, I, I had an insight. And so you had to sort of make that little, little bit bigger. So the, the, the tradition provided history of past Buddhas and multiple heavens and... Um, you know, it's my guru is bigger than yours. You know, um, the marks of a great man. You know, the Buddha was uh, remarkable in appearance, and you know he has this knot on the top of his head, which uh, actually became abstracted when you look at pagodas in Japan. Those are the those are the stages of an abstraction of the ushnisha, which which sits on the top of the head. There were some there were schisms that occurred in the in the course of the the uh, uh, development, and they weren't schisms as we would think of them. Schisms based on differences in doctrine, particularly. They were basically schisms based in practice. So, for example, and some of these happened during the Buddha's lifetime. The Buddha's cousin Devadatta wanted the Buddha to prohibit the eating of meat in the in the uh, in the Sangha. And the Buddha refused. He said, I, you know, we eat what's given. We won't eat meat that's killed specifically for us. But, you know, if you have some people saying eat meat, some people saying not, it's hard to practice together. So the schisms occurred. Some people wanted to eat afternoon, some not. And of course there were all kinds of strains over what the precepts meant and 
So there were 18 schools um, at the time. Uh, about 18 different, 18 different schools. Yes, 18 f formal schools. And actually, some of these schools, they each had their own texts by this time. And some of them um, went to China and were translated into the Chinese and are now being recaptured by scholars. And they'll take a look at the, you know, this version of the Satipatthana Sutta and that version, and they'll look and they'll go, geez, not exactly the same. The gist is the same, the signal is the same, but, you know, Saraputta wasn't the senior disciple in, for the Sarastavadins, it was Mahakasapa. So who's right and does it matter? About the first century, right, I'm not quite sure what you call that, you can say the turn of the century, what is it, the turn of the... the the year zero. Yeah, but it's the turn of whenever that was. About that time, there was a guy named Nagarjuna, who in the tradition is generally considered next to the Buddha to be the, uh, the most important uh, thinker. And, and, I, and he formalized the, uh, the teaching of emptiness. I, I recommend... Um, I mean, his book on, there's a book called The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way by, and it's translated in a um, commentary by Jay Garfield. It's excellent, but it's very, very steep reading. But, you know, he starts with the emptiness of cause and effect. Cause and effect, empty. And emptiness of emptiness at the end. And it became the foundation for a lot of the Mahayana teachings. In Zen, you know, you look at the paintings and all the misty mountains, it's an effort to try to depict some sense of emptiness. <coughs> in Tibet, Buddhism came into Tibet and encountered the magic religions, Tantra, Bon, a lot of Hinduism, so you see the same kind of elaborate paintings and ornamentation in, in Hinduism when you have a lot of the secret teachings. And enlightenment became some kind of, it became an idea that became an ideal. Enlightenment feels to me, and all this is my vision of course, and I'm sure there are scholars who would pick at things, but enlightenment seems to me to be something, it's got an essence, something which if I can just get that, it will fill the hole in me, the lack. What I'm missing is that enlightenment. So here the Dharma comes to us. And we have a whole array of teachings available to us. And in our culture, it, it encounters... Well, certainly scientism. We like to feel that we can at least test some of this stuff. You know? Um, we aren't necessarily willing to just take something 
we can't experience based on someone's word. I mean, you can't really test karma, the notion of what goes around comes around. We like to test that. We like to test stuff. So we, we kind of don't know quite what to do with all the stuff about multiple births and magical powers. And that we sort of, sort of suspend disbelief. And we've got a lot of psychology in our Dharma. You know, we have more words for psychological states than the Eskimos have for snow. <laughs> you know, a friend of mine was, a friend of a friend, a Tibetan learning English said, you know, as I learned English, I didn't realize I had so many emotions. <laughs> you know, because in Tibet, generally, street languages, feel good, feel not so good. But we split hairs over what's a sociopath, what's a psychopath. Neurosis is not schizophrenia. I mean, we've, and we just don't even see them the same. You know. So we've got a lot of psychology, we've got the skepticism of science, and the signal that comes through the strongest is that one of the four truths. You know, the first truth is the, is the fact of, well, it's supposed to be the truth of dukkha, but what the Buddha doesn't define it. What he does is he, makes, he gives you a list of these experiences. Here's the experiences. Birth, unpleasant. I think we all, the story is we all started with a big no way. <laughs> it didn't work, but uh, here we are. Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, getting what you don't want, not getting what you want, losing what you cherish. Anybody missed any of these? No. <laughs> I mean, this is, these are the venues for suffering, but the origin of suffering, the, the second truth in tanha. The word tanha is described as well, it's glossed as desire. In Pali, there as many words for desire as we've got for mental states. Uh, it's a particular kind of wanting. And I, th I think of it pretty much as, as what's built into the organism. It comes with the package. There are three kinds of tanha, bhavatana, to become, to be something, to survive. The survival, is, we, I think of it as experiences, ambition. We want to be something. We want to be something in the future. We want a future. You know? and, there, and you can feel it. It's, it's visceral. We want to survive and be something next. Kama tanha. Craving for sensual experience. We don't wake up in the morning and figure out how to cause ourselves pain. We try to... We don't sit down and eat food we don't like. And say, boy, I'm looking for some, I don't know, whatever it is you don't like. <laughs> we just don't, you know? I mean, it's a, there's a difference, actually, in the teachings, there's a difference between the hindrance, which is 
kamachanda, which is a desire for sens- sensual experience, and kamatana. I think the difference is kamachanda, this is my take, so you know, you're free to. Kamachanda is we want a particular pleasant experience. Kamatanha is we want our experience to be pleasant. We can do without, ah, no ice cream today, okay. But, but if all the experience is unpleasant, we, get, we start to suffer. And vibhavatanha, it's the need to make the unpleasant stuff go away. I think this is all, all rooted in our biology. Tanha. The Buddhist, the third truth is that the cessation of tanha is possible, and that that it's ex- he's explicit in the in the in the uh, uh, first turning sutra where he sutta where he describes it's the cessation of suffering is the cessation of tanha. Suffering dukkha is is a composite experience between tanha and the unpleasant experience of birth, aging, sickness, death, not getting what you want, etc. So when the organism encounters unpleasant experience, dukkha. Cessation is possible, he said, and the way of living without dukkha is the eightfold path. It's an eightfold path. Each of the elements of the path exists in a way that enables the abandonment of tanha. We want to not give expression to that kind of craving. Right understanding, right view, is the understanding that enables us to do that. So when we see something that's attractive, we say, hmm, nice, but we don't need to grasp it. No upadana going. Right intention. The intention to step back to abandon, to renounce, sometimes is taught as renunciation, to abandon tanha and its products, and to cultivate the brahma-viharas, the positive qualities of the heart. Speech, action, and livelihood aren't distinct. It's the walking around, what you do when you're off the cushion, you're engaging the world. Sort of like when the Buddha says, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, whether you're talking, acting, or living in the world. It's a way of living in the world without without giving expression to craving, to tanha. Right effort. This stuff is not easy. It takes effort. Going with the flow is going to take you right down the path we've already been. And, and the meditation elements, right mindfulness and right concentration, Achan Chai used to say, meditation is like this pen, this end. Mindfulness, this end. Concentration. So the, eight, the Eightfold Path is what we're left with. And there are a wide variety of teachings and practices. But this is how it appears to me, and I hope that, that this is of use to you. Let's take a minute and see if there are questions or comments or thoughts or reactions. or Please. The analysis you mentioned that Stephen Batchelor did, uh-huh. is that in a book? I think it is. Is Buddhism without beliefs? Yeah. I think. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, I have two questions. One, um, is there a book 
that you know of that kind of delineates and differentiates between the different <coughs> schools of Buddhism today? The, you know, Zen, mm. Tibetan. Well, you probably can find some of that in Wikipedia. You know, the, the creation of the, the Pali Canon occurred pretty much in the way Wikipedia <laughs> is, is, is done. Uh, except the Wikipedia keeps track of who adds and what they added, and we just get the, we just get the page. Oh, you know, you read a lot of different things. I, you know, I, I would recommend uh, Richard Gombrich's book called Theravada Buddhism. It, he's, a, he's an Oxford, he was the president of the Polytech Society for 20 years and had the Oxford chair in uh, Sanskrit languages. And Gombrich, G-O-M-B-R-I-C-H. And his book, uh, it's scholarly. It's not, he's not a... a a, an overt practitioner. He doesn't claim to represent anything more than the, an academic perspective, but it's excellent. I have a copy of it here if you want, want to look at it. Yeah. One other question I've had for a long time, <coughs> a little irrelevant, but what, what's the older language, Sanskrit or Pali? Well, Pali is is called, um, Pali is the language in which the Buddhist teachings were collected. And the reason, the mm, no. spoken, and, and the, the Buddha explicitly didn't want the teachings kept in Sanskrit because that was the language of the Brahmins. So it's primarily, I mean, it's, it, it now can be spoken, but it was primarily not a spoken language, although it probably mirrored uh, vernacular speech at the time. It's, it's very similar to, to Sanskrit. Dharma and Dhamma, Karma and Kama, they're, very, they're similar uh, forms in, most, in many cases. Anything else? Well, I thank you for your attention. Thank you.